0: Scripture read this morning is going to come from the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5. If it's in a red pew back Bible in front of you, page 1031, we're going to read Revelation chapter 5, we're going to read verses 6 through 10. Revelation 5, 6 through 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God and from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth.
1: Just three weeks from today, That is September 22nd through 25th, we're going to begin our fall gospel meeting here at Katy. I hope you've been praying about this, hope you're planning for it. This is going to be preached by Brother Wes McAdams and his topics, his themes are going to deal with who Jesus is. The idea of this meeting is, we all need to know Jesus better and we can all learn more and grow closer to him as we study his word, but especially for those who don't know much about Jesus, for those who maybe don't have a relationship with him, and those who are out there in our community that are our friends, that are our neighbors, this meeting is intended to, to have, have them come and see who Jesus really is. All the lessons are going to come from the Gospel of John. All of them are going to focus on a different aspect of Jesus and his character of the challenges that he presents to us, of the demands that he makes to us, and of the great blessings that he provides for us. So invite your friends, invite your neighbors, come yourself, come and see who Jesus really is. Again, that starts three weeks from today. So be planning about that. There are some flyers in the foyer. We'll have more advertisements and things available in the next week or so. So please be prayerful about that and be thinking about it and and looking forward to it. All of this month when we're not having a gospel meeting, we're going to be dealing with lessons from the book of Revelation as we continue our yearly theme, Rise Up and Build. This month, Building in Victory. And every one of the lessons is going to come from the book of Revelation and show us a different picture of the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. If you haven't already got your Bibles open to Revelation chapter five, please do so. Everybody needs a foundation, a place to stand. And especially when the world seems to be losing its mind, especially when all of the news unsettles us, causes us to question and wonder, is anybody really in charge? And if so, do they see and do they understand what we're dealing with here in this world? There's a song that comes to mind as we think about the news of the day and the different things that happen and come before our eyes. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. If you wanted to give a caption to Revelation chapters four and five, that would be a really good one because the people to whom revelation was written 2000 years ago were living in a world where they felt powerless to stop the evil that was all around them and very often that evil that was all around them turned towards those who were of the light those who were following Jesus and it inflicted great harm on the church and so those saints they were asking is, is anybody concerned does God know does he does he care And as Revelation begins, this book that talks about victory in Jesus, it talks about the victory of those who follow the Lamb. The book of Revelation is written to reassure and to strengthen the faith of those who are following Jesus Christ. And so in chapters one through three of Revelation, the book begins with a vision of Jesus and then some letters, some specific messages to seven specific congregations in the first century. And interestingly, as you look at Revelation chapters two and three, those letters, they kind of detail a lot of the same problems that churches today face. More about that later this month, Lord willing. But then when you turn to Revelation chapter four, there is a glorious vision. Look if you would at Revelation chapter four, verses one through 11. A glorious vision of God seated on his throne. And there are four heavenly creatures and they're calling out to one another. Revelation 4 verse 8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts who was and is and is to come. Sometimes as Christians we need to stop and take a step back and instead of looking at all the troubles and all the wickedness and all the evil that's around us, we need to look at the God that we serve. God has always been from eternity past, he was God is present and he is ruling now. He is. And God will always be on his throne. He is to come. And because of God's rule and because he still is on his throne, Christians can be reassured and have a foundation. We serve a God who rules. And then in chapter 5, there is further assurance given. The focus and the attention turns to the Lamb the one who God sent to save us from our sins. As we look at Revelation chapter five this morning, as we think about the God who rules, and as we think about the worthy lamb, I'd like to draw your attention this morning to four different aspects of Revelation chapter five. As we look at verses one through four, I want us to notice the scroll. We'll talk about that. And then as we look at verses five through nine, I want us to look at the lamb himself. What can you learn about Jesus? What can you learn about this worthy lamb? as revealed in Revelation chapter five. And then as you look at verses nine through 14, I want us to learn about the worship, the worship that's offered. And then fourth, some guarantees. Because this passage is written to reassure our hearts, because this passage is written to strengthen our faith, what are some guarantees that every Christian can take to the bank no matter what? As you look at Revelation chapter 5 verses 1 through 4, notice first of all the scroll. John has just seen this vision, this scene of God seated on his throne, and then John's attention is drawn to something that's in God's right hand. Look at Revelation 5 and verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back and sealed with seven seals what do I learn about this scroll just based on verse one? Notice this. It is a very important document. It's very important. Think about it. Where is this document? It's in the throne. It's in the throne room of God and it's being held by God himself. It's important. Not only that, I learned of its importance because it's been sealed with seven seals when a king or an ancient ruler would write a really important letter, he didn't just leave it unfurled for everybody to read who could see it. He would seal it and he would put his insignia upon it so that nobody could read it except for the intended recipient. And this particular scroll is critical. It's important because it's in God's hand. It's something that he is holding on to. And it's something that has been sealed by him. Notice as you read in verse two, the scripture says about the scroll, a strong angel proclaimed with a loud voice. You can just imagine this scene as John is seeing these things. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? That's a question that's left ringing in everybody's ears. Who's worthy? And all the multitudes and the myriads of heaven, they look among themselves and they start to ask, are you worthy? Are you? Who's able to do this? And the scripture says in verse 3, emphatically, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. A scroll in God's right hand, it's got writing. We can see the writing, but we don't know what it says because it's sealed with seven seals. We, we can't see what's in this scroll. And, and who's worthy? You've got to be worthy to open the scroll. And as a search is made, nobody's worthy. Nobody can take this scroll out of God's right hand and open it. And notice John's reaction in verse four. As he's seeing all this, John weeps. And not only does he weep, it says, I wept much. He's just devastated because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look at it. The idea of this scroll People want to know, what is this? What's so important? What's in God's right hand that, that nobody is worthy to open and, and what's written on the scroll? I want to see all that God's got to say. What's so important about this? Some have suggested that the scroll is the plan of salvation. They said, well, it looks like this is how God's gonna save man, how God's gonna redeem man. And there may be an element of that in this. However, consider this. It is not until the lamb is slain, sheds his blood, that he is found to be worthy to take the scroll and to open it up. I would suggest that it's not necessarily the plan of salvation, the plan of how we're going to be redeemed, that's in God's right hand, sealed with seven seals. It's after the plan of salvation has been made available that this scroll is taken and these seals are opened. So what's in the scroll? I would suggest this, you ever frustrated by the world? You see people that lose their minds, they go crazy and they decide they're just going to take a gun and randomly start shooting people on the highway? Or you look at the rulers of the world and you see their tweets and you see their messages on social media and you think, what is going through these people's minds? How could they possibly have this in their hearts? And what does that mean for us as they're our leaders? Or, or you look at the, the, the news and you see the way people are treating each other. I'll tell you something, I say some special prayers for our law enforcement officers. We've got a number that worship here. But you talk about seeing wickedness and depravity on a daily basis. How does that not affect your heart? How does that not cause you to stop and say, what is wrong with people? And what is wrong with the world? And how is any of this ever gonna be made right? You wanna know what's on the scroll? I'll tell you what I believe is on the scroll. On the scroll is what God can do to start to make things right. That's what's on this scroll. What God's gonna do to start to make things right in this world. And while we're in this world and while sin exists, there is never gonna be a sense in which we fully experience things that are right. But I will tell you this, The Bible promises there is ultimately a day of judgment that is coming, and on that day every account will be settled, and it will be settled fairly, it will be settled perfectly with all of us. That's what's on the scroll. These seals that are being revealed, that are being opened later on in the book of Revelation, they have to do with those things that are wrong, that are unjust, that are wicked, that are evil. God's saying, I'm going to do something about those. And not everything that you see may happen as fast as you want it to and may happen in the way that you want it to, Christians. You just trust me and be faithful. I've got the scroll. Though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And nobody is worthy to open the scroll. After all, can you fix what's wrong with the world? People have tried. Nebuchadnezzar thought he could run the world, made it worse. Julius Caesar thought he could run the world. Adolf Hitler thought he could run the world. He thought that he could just give me the power and I'll fix all that's wrong with the world. And all those guys had what they thought was the solution. Only Jesus is worthy to open the scroll to fix what's really wrong with the world. Second, let me call your attention to the Lamb this morning. As you look at Revelation chapter 5, notice verses 5 through 8. This very important scroll in the right hand of God, God's going to make things right in the world. Nobody's worthy. But then, verse 5, one of the elders said to me, John, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. I want you to spend just a minute looking at the different ways in which Jesus is depicted in this passage because it's important. Who is it that we serve? Who is it that we trust? Who is it that we've given our allegiance to? I mean, really, who is he? The first thing it says is that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, you see it? Back in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, back before Jacob died, Jacob was blessing his sons. Remember Jacob had the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel? And Jacob was blessing each one of his sons in turn and he said about Judah when he got to Judah in Genesis 49 verse 10, Judah is a lion's whelp. There's going to come a lion from the tribe of Judah is the implication there. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, the peaceful one. And so when Revelation calls Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah, it's saying, He's the one that Jacob was talking about all those millennia ago. He's the one that's the descendant of Jacob. He's the one that was prophesied and predicted. And he's the one that you put your confidence in. But not only is he a lion, the scripture goes on to say that he is the root of David. You might jot down in your Bibles 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 11 through 14. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 11 through 14, a prophet named Nathan came and spoke to David and he made a promise to David. He said, David, after you are gone, God is going to raise up from your offspring a king. He's going to build a house for my name and his kingdom shall last forever. And so from that prophecy onward in 2 Samuel 7 verses 11 through 14. From that prophecy on, the people of Israel knew that when the Messiah came, the one who was going to take the, 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 uh, the scroll out of God's hand and was going to open these seals, that one had to be from the house of David. He had to be a descendant of David. And when you read Matthew chapter 1 and when you read Luke chapter 3, the Bible makes it very clear That not only was Jesus a descendant of Judah specifically, but he was a descendant of David, that royal bloodline. It matters who Jesus is because he has the credentials to be the worthy one. Notice, third, as you look at how Jesus is described, he's described as an overcomer. I use that phrase because really the emphasis is he has overcome. He has taken everything that evil could possibly do to him, and he has overcome sin, sinlessly perfect. He has overcome Satan, destroyed the works of the devil. He has overcome death itself. Sin, Satan, and death. And so what does Jesus look like? He looks like a lamb. Incidentally, more than 30 times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the lamb. When John the baptizer pointed out Jesus early in his ministry, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John chapter 1 verse 29. Who is Jesus? He is the Lamb who was slain. But look if you would at verse 6. The Lamb looks like he's been slain, but he is standing. He's standing in the midst of all these elders and these creatures in the midst of the throne. But I thought he was slain. Yes, he was slain. And now he's risen again. He is the overcomer. And the lesson for Christians in the first century and the lesson for you and me is this, brothers and sisters. The way to victory is through submissive obedience to God's will. The way to victory over all this wrong and all this evil and all this sin that we see around us, even the sin in our own lives and our own homes, the way to victory is through submissive obedience to the Lamb because that's what the Lamb exemplifies for us. What did Jesus do? He became obedient even to the point of his death. Philippians 2 verses 6 through 8 He became submissive to God and to God's will. Sometimes I'd like to take matters into my own hands. I'd like to fix things. I'd like to right the wrongs. And I'd like to bring justice to the world. And I'd like to tell people and tell everybody exactly what they need to do with their lives. If they just listen to me, it'd be better. But the Bible says no. You speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4 verse 15. But you put your trust in the Lamb who was slain evil put him on the cross, but Jesus overcame. Notice how he's depicted. Look at verse seven, or the lighter part of verse six. The scripture says he had seven horns. A horn in apocalyptic literature is usually representative of power. That's what it means. It means power. And so what is the lamb? He is powerful. How powerful is he? He has seven horns. Seven is the number of completeness or perfection. He has all power. He has all authority by virtue of his death and his burial and his resurrection having overcome sin. That's who we trust. A lamb who is all powerful. He's got the credentials to be the worthy one. He has overcome Satan's sin and death and now he has seven horns. But not only that, look at this. The passage says in verse six that he has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Highly symbolic language. But you know what that means? He sees everything. He sees everything. You know, sometimes we think that we're getting away with sin. We think that nobody called me on the carpet about this. Nobody nobody found out what I did. So I must have gotten away with everything must be fine. No, I tell you what, the lamb has seven eyes and he sees both what is done in public. He sees what is done in the darkness. Nothing escapes his attention. And as God makes things right, as God settles accounts, we can have confidence in the lamb who has seven horns, all power, seven eyes. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing the seven spirits of God, the fullness of God, everything that makes God, God dwells in him. That's who the lamb is. And so if you look at verse 7, the Bible says the lamb comes and he takes the scroll, he approaches the throne, nobody else is worthy to do it, and he, uh, he takes that scroll away from the right hand of God. And the Bible says in verse 8, when he takes this scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. There is a celebration. Some have suggested, and I think there may be something to this, that this is something of a coronation ceremony for the Lamb. You know what happened to Jesus after his resurrection? Jesus died on the cross, was buried for three days, raised on the third day. He appeared for just a short period of weeks. And then in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, the Bible says he ascended. You know where he's gone? You know what's happened? The Bible says that Jesus has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of glory. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, God has highly exalted him. And Revelation 5 and verse 8 says, seems to be an indication of that sitting down, that session of Jesus, the idea that he has now been exalted to the throne of God and everybody is obligated to worship him. There's rejoicing because he has taken the scroll and he has sat down and he himself has the right, the power to open the scroll. Though the wrong seems also strong, we need to think about the lamb that we follow. I call your attention third this morning to the worship. Look at verses 9 through 14. Notice first of all that the worship emanates out. It's almost as if, if you look at verses 9 through 11, or excuse me, uh, 8, 9, and 10, if you look at 8, 9, and 10, you'll find that it's immediately around the throne, the four living creatures, the 24 elders that are worshiping. And then if you look at verses 11 and 12, a bigger circle. All of the angels, it calls them myriads of myriads or thousands of thousands in verse 11. They all begin to worship the lamb. And then in verse 13, all of creation worships the lamb. It's as if you've got three worship scenes and it's moving out in concentric circles. Notice in the first worship scene, verses eight through 10, they sang a new song, it says in verse nine. And what's the song they sing? to the lamb. They sing about his worthiness. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain. And then they begin to sing about redemption and about blessings in Christ. Notice they sing about the means of our redemption. The means of our redemption. You have redeemed us to God by your blood. How are people saved? Where is our hope, where is our confidence? Our hope and our confidence, brothers and sisters and friends, is in the blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus must cleanse you from your sin, it must cleanse me from my sin, if I'm going to be saved, if I'm going to be redeemed. But not only that, it talks about the transaction of my redemption. Jesus purchased us by his blood. You want to know what that means as a Christian? When the world seems so wicked and so astray, I've been bought with a price. I'm not my own. I don't belong to me anymore. You don't belong to you anymore. As a Christian, you have been redeemed by his blood, which means that the way you live matters. The way you act matters. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. Why should I abstain from things like sexual immorality? Paul says, because you were bought with a price, you're not your own, that's why. The means of our transaction, uh, the means of our redemption, the transaction of our redemption. Then notice this. Look at the latter part of verse nine. Who did Jesus redeem? Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Jesus died for everyone. Regardless of our nationality, regardless of our ethnicity, Jesus died for all. The universality, the scope of our redemption. How we need to think more as the church here in Katy about the universal nature of what Jesus has done. He has died for everyone, whether that person looks like me or not. And then notice this, The Bible talks about the effect or the blessings of redemption. He has made us, verse 10, kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Kings and priests to our God, a kingdom, some translations say. You know what we have in Christ? Fellowship and access to God and a place to serve. That's what we have in Christ, among many other things. We are a kingdom. He rules, and we are his citizens, and we are his servants, and we are his priests. A king, a kingdom, and priests. And so there is exultant worship that is offered to the Lamb because of what He's done, because of His worthiness. Look at this. As you look at verse 12, worthy is the Lamb, they say in the second worship scene, who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You know, I was reading that a long time ago and all of a sudden it hit me. Those are all the things that I really want for myself. How about you? Power and riches and wisdom. Those would be nice to have, wouldn't they? Strength and honor and glory and blessing, those would be nice to have, wouldn't they? If people really appreciated who you were, if people really gave you a lot of wealth and wisdom and those kinds of things, if people thought highly of you, those are the things that you and I would want for ourselves. And the Scripture says, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, we keep none of those things for ourselves. We give all of those things to him. Have you put those things in his hands? The worship scene blessing and honor and glory and power verse 13 be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever i call your attention forth this morning to the guarantees of this passage you see something of the greatness of jesus christ and what he's accomplished for us and what he's still accomplishing for us as he rules on the throne in this chapter four guarantees that this chapter calls our attention to number one When wicked times are all around, our prayers are heard. When wicked times are all around, this chapter emphasizes that our prayers are heard. Look at verse eight again very carefully. What do the elders have around the throne of God? They have harps symbolizing praise. They have golden censers, golden bowls. And what's in the golden bowls? What does it say in Revelation five verse eight? What's in the golden bowls? The prayers of the saints. Our prayers, brothers and sisters and friends, they are treasured by God, so much so that he puts them in bowls of gold. God hears and answers prayer. We have this confidence that if we ask anything according to his will, we know he hears us. First John chapter five and verse 14. Guarantee number two, spiritual blessings are only found in Jesus Christ. Spiritual blessings are only found in Jesus Christ. Who else is worthy? Who else can save you? Who else can provide fellowship? Who else can provide forgiveness? Who else has overcome Satan and sin and death completely? Who else has done that? only the lamb and so when we're tempted in times of difficulty and persecution and suffering we're tempted to go and find another way to find comfort somewhere else the bible is saying here he's the only one hold on to him don't give up guarantee number three this passage assures us brothers and sisters of the invincibility of the throne of god The invincibility of the throne of God. Nations may make it their policy that they are going to persecute God's kingdom. They may make it their policy that they're going to try to eradicate God's word. They have done that in the past, but God rules and God's going to make everything all right. The invincibility of the throne of God. The kingdom of God shall break into pieces all others. Daniel chapter two, verses 44 and 45. Guarantee number four, you and I have access to the riches of Jesus Christ through his blood. You and I have access to the riches of Jesus Christ through his blood. You know what really matters? At the end of the day, what really matters is whether or not I have submitted to and obeyed Jesus Christ in my life. Everything else, all the wrong, all the wickedness, all those things, we want to stand against those, we want to speak out against those things, we want to fight against those things, but I tell you what, what really matters is am I washed in the blood of the Lamb? And this passage guarantees you have access no matter what tribe or nation or language you're from, you have access to His blood. If you'll only receive the gift that's been offered. Come to Jesus in submissive faith. Worthy is the Lamb. It strengthens our faith and it builds our courage when we realize that we serve Almighty God and He's on His throne and He is not going to abdicate. Come to Jesus in submissive faith this morning if you're not a Christian believing and trusting in who He is, believing that He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the slain Lamb for you, who's made an avenue for you to come to God. If you're ready to make that commitment this morning, believe in Him, confess His name, repent of your sin, be baptized for the remission of your sin. We need to turn our lives over to Him, and we need to realize that true success is found in trusting his will, and obeying what he says. If we can help you to obey the gospel, or if we can uh, offer prayers on your behalf, whatever you need, won't you come while we stand and sing?